Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro directors here at LSE, and it's a very great pleasure to welcome you all to the launch tonight of a new book, Gridlock, by Thomas Hale, who's immediately to my right. Um, David Held, who many of you will recognize, is at the end of the podium, and Kevin Young. Um, now is the time, please, if you would turn your phones to silent. If you want to tweet, the hashtag is LSE Gridlock. Gridlock. And we are hoping to have a podcast of this event in due course if there's no technical failure. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different this evening, uh, partly at David's behest, which is that for about the first 45 minutes, I'm going to lob a series of questions at uh, Tom, Kevin, and David around the book. That will give a sense of what the book is about, what its main theses are. And when we've done that, there'll be about eight questions that I'll be leading off with, and we'll open it up to the audience more generally. So let me just say a word or two about each of our guests tonight. Uh, Thomas Hale, here to my right, is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Blavetnik School of Government at Oxford University. Uh, Tom has his PhD from Princeton, but we're pleased to welcome him back tonight. He did get his Master's in Global Policy here at LSE. Uh, Kevin Young, to Thomas's right, is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, Kevin's well known for his work in the field of international political economy, particularly, I think, on financial regulation. And before uh, Kevin moved uh, across the Atlantic, he was previously in the Department of Government here at LSE, which I think is where he received uh, his PhD. Uh, David Held now is very grandly the Master of University College and Professor of Politics and International Relations at Durham University. Um, it's a great pleasure to have all of you back here tonight, but David, of course, has been a long-time member of LSE. Many of you will know him as the person that held the Graham Wallace Chair at the school. David, of course, is very well known for a wide range of works I think particularly in the fields of political theory, globalization, and cosmopolitanism. Uh, as many of us also know, and I've been a beneficiary of this, uh, David is also uh, a very distinguished businessman, uh, having set up with Tony Giddens and John Thompson uh, Polity Press, which I think is one of the major academic publishers in the UK. So we're delighted that you're all back here at the school tonight. Um, I'm going to invite you first uh, just to talk a little bit uh, about the book and its title. Uh, as everybody can see in the room, the proper title of the book, Gridlock, the subtitle is Why Global Cooperation is Failing uh, When We Need It Most. So, I mean, why do you think it's a particular issue now and why do we need cooperation more than ever? Well, thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Before I start, let me just say what a pleasure it is uh, to be back at the LSE, an institution I love very much and is probably the greatest social science university in the world. I'm also delighted to see a former director of the LSE here and the current director of the LSE, Tony Giddens, who's uh, sitting over there, is a long-standing friend of mine. We worked together and, of course, we co-founded Polity Press and has been a great inspiration to my work over many, many years. And Craig Calhoun is someone whose work often takes a different tack to my own, 
but I've always somehow been in debate with the positions that he's held. So I'd, it's a great honor and a privilege that they're both here uh, this evening. Thank you for organizing the event for us. We're very grateful. Uh, thank you, LSE. Thank you, LSE staff. Um, before I come on to answer your question directly, I would just like to say um, something about how the book came about. And it came about very much at the LSE. Uh, after the pretty much uh, breakdown of the climate negotiations at Copenhagen, I went to several lectures, as did uh, my colleagues here, on why Copenhagen didn't deliver the goods, why the climate negotiations at Copenhagen didn't deliver the goods. And the more of these lectures I went to, the more I began to think, and the more we began to think, and the more we began to discuss that it may be the wrong question. Everyone was treating the difficulties at Copenhagen as sui generis. That is, as something that happened in and of itself to be explained by reference to processes, as it were, internal to it. But it became very clear you could ask the same question about many breakdowns in many international negotiations, the Doha trade round being one among several others. So the question emerged to us anyway, why are international negotiations at this time so unproductive? And that's really stimulated the book. Now to the question, so why do we need more global cooperation than ever before? Here I think is the dilemma in a nutshell. Globalization has created a world of very complex interdependence. This has led to new global challenges and we don't know as yet how to address or resolve many of these global challenges. There's been a breakdown, as I've already alluded to, in many international negotiations, from the Doha trade round to Copenhagen. There were eight successful rounds of trade negotiations before Doha, but Doha has been negotiated for over 20 years, and there's still no resolution in sight. Just one example. The global financial crisis nearly plunged contemporary capitalism over the edge of the abyss. It was, only, it was very, very close indeed. Climate change seems to be running away with itself, and we're certainly not in sight, as we'll discuss in more detail soon, for a way of addressing and mitigating and resolving climate change. And Syria as a fourth example. How many need to die before we can find a coherent way to act? Nearly 100,000 dead and gridlock over that security challenge and that nightmare for the people in the country and the region. This then is a breakdown or failure of cooperation reproduced in one area after another. Why? What is different about the global order today? I want to just say a few things about that. In the first instance, I want to suggest to you that what we call globalization, which is really the stretching of human activity across space and time, has created a world of growing interconnectedness among states and societies, central aspects of which need governing. Now, we can measure globalization by measuring its extent, intensity, and velocity of patterns of interconnectedness. We're not going to do that now, but just to give you an example for that, take trade. We can show the ways in which more and more countries over time have traded with more and more countries, that's extensity, how more and more countries that trade with more and more countries trade greater and greater proportions of their GDP, that's intensity, and how, of course, because of contemporary communication infrastructures and transportation infrastructures, they can shift those goods and services much more rapidly than before. Across many different domains of human activity, it can be argued, there's been a confluence of change. It's particularly marked in the second half of the 20th century, producing a deep enmeshment of countries with each other. 
Elsewhere in some of my work that uh, Stuart kindly uh, uh, mentioned, I've talked about a shift in the modern period from largely national communities of fate, where countries could largely determine their own fate, the exceptions, of course, being war, to increasingly a world what, what I call overlapping communities of fate, where the fate and fortunes of countries are increasingly intertwined. Another way to put this is that up to a few hundred years ago, civilizations developed in relative isolation from each other, in relative discreteness from each other, as it were. Today, of course, this is no longer the case. Now, gridlock. Come back to the book, available at a very modest price outside afterwards, um, argues that globalization has generated complex patterns of interdependence which require effective governance which is in short, chronically short supply. Post-war institutions, I'm talking about now the Second World War and the creation of the UN system and the Bretton Woods institutions above all, created a unique set of circumstances which allowed a multitude of actors slowly over time to benefit from forming companies that could trade with each other across borders, multinational companies that could invest abroad, the development of global production chains, and that allowed these actors to engage in a very diverse array of social and economic processes which transcended borders. Now, these circumstances combined with the expansionary logic of capitalism and, the, and fundamental changes of technology changed a great deal. That institutional structure allowed a great deal of change. It changed the nature of the world economy. It radically increased dependence on people and countries from every corner of the world. This complex interdependence created demand for further institutions which states seeking the benefits of cooperation provided. So the argument in a nutshell is that the post-war institutions which sought to stabilize conflict after World War II, created the circumstances which allowed the world economy and general prosperity to develop, and this complex interdependence required management, that created more institutions, and you began a virtuous circle of what we call self-reinforcing interdependence. I'll come on to this image in just a moment. Now, we're not saying in this book that the post-war institutions were the only causes of the dynamic form of globalization experienced over the last few decades. Changes in the nature of global capitalism, including breakthroughs in transportation and information technology, of course, are obviously hugely important as well. However, what we are arguing is that none of these changes could have thrived or developed unless they took place in a relatively open, peaceful, liberal institutionalized world order. That was the crux. That was the condition. By preventing World War III and another Great Depression, the multilateral order, we suggest, did arguably as much for global interdependence as microprocessors or email have achieved. So hence this figure, the post-war institutional order, alongside, of course, technology and capitalist development, created a world of greater interdependence, that needed greater management, that created more institutions, and you began to get a virtuous circle that marked, basically, the prosperous years of the post-war period. End of stage work. Thank you, David. As it happens, I have been reading this book, um, so I partly know the answer to my next question. But, I mean, many people have been working on this issue of global governance failure. 
is gridlock mainly a descriptor that's you know a catchy title for the book or are you developing something new theoretically here um, we want to make a very specific argument about gridlock in this book. Um, cooperation between countries has always been hard. States don't like to give up sovereignty, even if it helps them solve some problems that they face in interdependence. We've had successful cooperation in the modern sense of the word since at least the 19th century. So what's different about the difficulty of cooperation now? Why is the difficulty we face today uh, different in nature from the difficulty we faced in previous periods of managing interdependence. An argument really relates exactly to this dynamic of self-reinforcing interdependence that David's laid out. And to see how, think about your last trip in a car. So in the middle of the 20th century, when these institutions that we've been talking about were first being set up, countries around the world invested in modern road infrastructure and highways and motorways, other networks of transportation. This uh, trend was most strongly adopted in the United States under the leadership of President Eisenhower. President Eisenhower had seen the advantage of modern road technology when he was the supreme commander of Allied forces in Europe during World War II. When he was invading Germany, he saw how efficient the German road transportation system was and knew he needed to do the same thing in the United States. When he was just a corporal, a young corporal in the U.S. Army, he had led a convoy from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco to test the United States' road te uh, technology. Guess how long that trip from across the continent took? It took 62 days. Today, that trip takes 45 hours, in large part thanks to the infrastructure that Dwight Eisenhower uh, spearheaded when he was president. So this was an enormously successful example of road building. It was, uh, it's widely seen as one of the key institutional and infrastructural ingredients of the broad prosperity the United States enjoyed after World War II. But it also changed the nature of American society. As people had cars, they were able to move out of cities, establish things called suburbs, which radically transformed the way people lived. Suddenly they needed cars to survive. They bought more and more cars. People needed more roads to drive on the cars. And the result, eventually, was something much more like this. Where, like this, where the problem that they had set out to solve and had successfully solved actually then overwhelmed the capacity of that very same technology, road building, to solve it uh, in a later time period. It also led to new kinds of problems. We have a sedentary lifestyle. We have environmental difficulties. We have health difficulties. It all stemmed from over-reliance on automobiles. Um, but that doesn't mean it was wrong to build the infrastructure in the middle of the 20th century. It was definitely the right thing to do at the time. The problem is managing the consequences. The same dynamic applies, we argue, to the different kind of interstate system, the international order. Um, the very institutions that we're, we used to, manage, to create a more integrated world economy, to build a security infrastructure that would prevent World War III, have unleashed conditions of interdependence, a profound deepening of interdependence that they can no longer manage. Um, and that's really what makes gridlock different from other explanations. Uh, it's historically contingent. It's a broad systemic uh, pathology that affects the entire international system. Um, and it relates to four specific drivers, four things about interdependence that make cooperation difficult. And these are the arguments we trace in the book. Um, first, we have a rapid shift in power from the established countries, the established powers to new powers, as we have more people at the table negotiating with more influence Agreement is often harder to reach. We also have a system of institutional inertia where the decision-making procedures that were set up in the 1950s, 1940s uh, have lost touch with the reality of power relations today. 
We also have a lot harder problems. The issues we confront to penetrate more deeply into societies, making them more, require greater adjustments on the part of countries to achieve cooperation around. And last, we have uh, dysfunctional fragmentation in many areas where the pro proliferation of institutions we've set up are now butting up against each other with competing mandates and leading to uh, making problems ironically harder to solve. So it's a complex phenomenon. If I can try to answer your question as well, it's, it's both a nice descriptive device and, a, and an explanation that we're providing for uh, the, the fact that the kind of institutional supply of uh, uh, global governance solutions hasn't met uh, the demand that previous supply has created, essentially. So is it okay if I just sort of hash out uh, each Please. of these mechanisms uh, sort of one by one a little bit? So um, in, in terms of emerging multipolarity, we, we identified this and the other, the other three um, uh, gridlock pathways as, 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 as uh, among a variety of different causes for, for, for gridlock today. And we, we label these all uh, what we call second-order cooperation problems, right? They're cooperation problems at the international level or the global level that exist because of previous success in international cooperation. So they're unique. These are not cooperation problems that exist sort of in an, extract, excuse me, in an abstract space uh, that we can theorize. And so they're therefore problems that have emerged uh, historically. So take, for example, emerging multipolarity. Um, since, since the financial crisis, and in particular over the last decade, we have more and more international negotiations that are, that are being stalled and that are, that are coming to deadlock positions because of the rise of the BRICS and a greater diversity of, uh, of uh, states that are powerful enough to not be pushed around anymore. And this is arguably inhibiting a lot of uh, international cooperation for good, for good or ill. Um, uh, institutional inertia, uh, you know, the, the, the prime kind of example, this kind of uh, dynamic uh, at work would be, you know, the UN Security Council. It's created by the victors. It's a, a post-war institution created by the victors to give the winners of World War II uh, a, a veto uh, that was essential historically. It embedded the privileges of these, uh, of these victors. And today, arguably, that causes all kinds of problems when we try to confront the kind of conditions uh, of cooperation that, uh, that we need today in the, in the, in the current uh, security uh, environment. In terms of harder, complex problems, you know, 50 years ago when international trade negotiations uh, uh, set, to, set to resolve issues, they were dealing with at-the-border problems, right? They were dealing with things like tariffs and anti-dumping, things, things that existed at the border. And now we've moved into a terrain. Global cooperation has been so successful. Global integration has been so intense that we're now moving into issues like intellectual property rights, um, and, and a host of other issues that are essentially more complex and harder. And then finally, fragmentation. This is, this is uh, one of my favorite second-order cooperation problems because in, in many areas of global governance, right, um, in, in the environment, in finance, for example, we have tons of um, international institutions that have emerged to, to micromanage particular problems that have emerged historically. Um, uh, but now we have, you know, collections of institutions that exist sort of in a network structure among each other, um, but often the, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. These institutions don't relate to, to each other in any kind of logical way. There's an overlap in terms of the kind of jurisdiction they have. There's issues of communication between international institutions within the international system. So all of these, all these examples are the, the kind of main mechanisms or pathways we conceive of in the book. That lead, to, that lead to gridlock. So it's, so it's both a, a, a sort of clever, pithy uh, um, uh, uh, title, I suppose, and an explanation uh, that we're, where we're trying to add value to existing uh, explanations of, of breakdown.
Thanks, Kevin. I mean, as you move into the heart of the book, there's some fairly empirical discussions of things like the politics of climate change. You've already mentioned the environment. When you showed the slide of the motorways, it reminded me of my hometown, Birmingham, <laughs> but I don't think it was Birmingham. Um, and then you talked about financial regulation. So, I mean, maybe the way to make this discussion a little bit more concrete is to take these in turn. So maybe one of you could talk about you know, the difficulties of the politics of climate change. Oh, I'd be very happy to. So climate change is the case par excellence of a more difficult problem. The technical term that some social scientists use to describe it is a super wicked problem, which means it has uh, all sorts of characteristics that make it incredibly difficult to solve. So um, if you, environmental problems in general used to be local issues. Is my water clean? Is the air I breathe clean? Um, is there a nice park behind my house? But the diffusion of industrial production around the world has made environmental problems global in nature. I mean, the most important environmental rate problems we face now are inherently global. Um, ecologists refer to the present period as the Anthropocene, meaning that the actions of man are the single most important uh, factor influencing the Earth's natural systems. That's a really powerful form of interdependence. It means that every action that every one of us in this room takes every day affects everyone else on the planet through our carbon emissions and other kinds of pollution. Now, it doesn't just affect other people on the planet now, it affects people on the planet in the future and our children are our children's children. So that kind of global interdependence has never really existed before. It was a, they might have had a local situation, an Easter Island scenario, where people uh, over-consume the resources, but this is a new kind of problem. Um, it also has, the you know, climate change embodies the difficulty of the power shift we observe in, in international relations, the emerging powers issue. Um, it has what... Uh, uh, Nicholas Stern has called a brutal arithmetic. That's the nature of the problem. Um, the people who are responsible for getting climate to the tipping point that we're at today are largely the rich countries, the people who have, since the Industrial Revolution, pumped carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. However, the people who will take us past the brink and into the realm of complete danger are the poor countries, countries who are just now beginning to enjoy the benefits of a middle-class lifestyle. Um, and so we have this inherent, the problem has this inherent conflict between rich and poor built into it. Um, and, of course, I should add the people who will suffer the most are the, are the countries in sub-Saharan Africa and small island states who have really least to, to do with causing the problem. So this is a really difficult thing to, to solve. Um, finally, we've tried to solve it using the technology, the institutional technology, institutional processes that we've always gone to. International negotiations that would have a global deal where we lay out the targets. You have to do this. You have to do this we'll have some sort of verification system, and we'll make them legally binding. So you really, really, really have to do it. Um, we've done that for 20 years now, and we've negotiated exactly one treaty, the Kyoto Protocol, which is meant to be a stepping stone to more ambitious measures. It hasn't been. It's been uh, a treaty that never really um, tried to do very much and failed to do the little that it, <laughs> that it tried to achieve. Um, probably the way to solve it is not going to be this institutional technology, but we remain stuck in these negotiations where thousands of delegates get together year after year to try to get there again. Um, so I think the climate change problem is really the case par excellence of gridlock and exactly embodies the problems we need to solve today. Okay, well, I mean, I know we're going to move on now to the financial crisis then, Kevin. Um, I mean, some of us might think the financial crisis has something to do with um, avaricious bankers, the failure of regulators, um, the, the fact that governments have been content to bribe us with their own money. I mean, how, how are you going to explain it differently? Why, why, why does a theory of gridlock help us? 
Right. So uh, we're, not, we're not trying to sort of directly compete with uh, those existing explanations. We're trying to sort of add value at the level of the international um, uh, system, I guess. And I guess I would disagree with Tom a little bit that climate change is sort of a gridlock issue par excellence, because I think uh, in the financial regulatory realm, it's much more, uh, even more apparent, as it were. So, so on the one hand, it's a, it's a clear case where um, uh, of institutional uh, supply that's in, insufficient to meet the, meet the demand. So we haven't been able to generate uh, strong enough, robust enough global institutions to manage the very kind of interdependencies that, as David mentioned, uh, uh, the wave of globalization after the war itself created, as it were. Um, in, you know, in the crisis, global institutions were, were adequate. They were just adequate to manage uh, the crisis. And so instead of getting a, a completely unmitigated crisis, as it were, an un unmitigated disaster, we got a, a mitigated disaster. This is a good thing in, in some ways, right? So not everything, uh, not, not everything failed. We did avoid the, the, uh, the, the worst outcomes. You know, the, the reaction, um, uh, the sort of fallout from the crisis, and the management of the crisis, um, uh, uh, looked very much like it was, was helped in many ways by existing international institutions. Um, uh, the world looks very different in, in 2008, for example, than it does in, in, in 1929, when the, when the last Great Depression started. But uh, I would argue that the, the gridlock mechanisms that we identify, that, that Tom just went over and we had up on the screen a, a little while ago, uh, they can actually help us to explain the kind of post-crisis regulatory response that, that has taken place and some of the failures of, of global economic governance since the financial crisis and so um, I, a, a, a large part of that story, arguably, is that a lot of governance uh, has moved from the G1, uh, the, the United States pushing its way around, or even the G8 and the G10 um, uh, being able to control the global economic agenda, to the G20. And arguably, that has made global cooperation more difficult uh, to achieve. Simply so, if you have more veto players at the table, it's more difficult to hash out a complex global agreement when there's different preferences at different uh, stages of development and different historical traditions. But a big part of the story, we also tell another gridlock mechanism that plays into the financial crisis story uh, is these fragmentation problems that I, that I mentioned uh, earlier. So existing institutions have been, have been created uh, over the last few decades to tackle particular uh, problems. Um, and they've emerged as effective uh, micromanagers since the 70s, uh, even to tackle particular problems. Uh, but what we're left with is a very, very loose patchwork, a kind of network uh, uh, of institutions uh, um, where uh, there's relatively unclear lines of accountability, there's an overlap jurisdictionally, and, um, uh, and these, these kind of problems. Um, so so take, take, for example, there's been initiatives at the global level, at various different levels of governance, since the crisis to tackle um, a, a better uh, management of derivative financial instruments, kind of complex financial instrument. It's very important for the global economy. Um, we've had initiatives from about five different international institutions, plus different, uh, different separate initiatives within the U.S., different initiatives uh, at, at the EU level, and yet different ones uh, here in the U.K., for example. A lot of this is uncoordinated. Uh, and that kind of uncertainty isn't actually good for markets, arguably, and it isn't good for, for citizens that want to kind of robust a regulatory reform. Um, so we, we, we have here a, a sort of a creation of a patchwork of institutions that doesn't always serve uh, the, the public purpose globally uh, uh, perceived. Another example would be one of these institutions, since the crisis, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision there, you know, they had this, this kind of reaction since the crisis um, to, to institute a new set of global standards, the Basel III Accord, 
Um, and uh, there's, there's actually a lot in there. There's a lot in there that's uh, uh, very interesting. And we just we discussed it a little bit in, in the book. But one of the consequences, for example, is that one of the uh, unintended consequences of this, this new uh, regulatory initiative by this Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, just this one node in this network, was that it messed up trade financing, the financing of uh, the exporting and, and, and importing of uh, uh, goods and services around the globe. And it took many months, and uh, uh, it took uh, the World Trade Organization and the World Bank completely by surprise that had no involvement in the creation of these global rules um, to eventually try to correct this problem. The point here is that the left hand doesn't often know what the the right hand is doing. So there's an institutional inertia story here arguably as well, right? So if you have a system like this, sometimes it can work like a resilient network, and other times it can work like chaos. And when it works like chaos, you want some sort of more centralized governing authority to kind of oversee the network, right? But we have institutional inertia problems among many of these big institutions. A lot of countries, a lot of whole regions of the world are arguably reluctant to cede authority to institutions like the Financial Stability Board or even the IMF that arguably some regions and countries of the world have Apache history with. So arguably, it's a a good example, I think, of um, all these different gridlock mechanisms kind of coming together to uh, uh, ensure uh, the the kind of supply, the global governance uh, solution, the supply to a lot of uh, new global dilemmas is chronically insufficient. It's one example among many we tell in in the book. Thanks, Kevin. And it's very nice to see a reference to a third LSE director there, Howard Davis, <laughs> on the slide. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things I think that people might want to explore later, um, which I thought was at the heart of the book, is the way that you think about the sort of global cartography of power, if I can put it that way. And a lot of the argument is about institutional inertia. So there's a very nuanced account of the fact that the EU and the United States have not gone away. Uh, but you're also talking about the rise of multipolarity and this what you call a massive shift in the distribution of power. Now, perhaps you could sort of talk us through that. And could you also, as a coder, say how you would deal with a slight sceptic like myself who tends to think still that the US is fairly hegemonic, that their ability to close European airspace recently is just one instance of that, as well as the ability to listen in on the conversations of people in the UK, France, and Germany. Um, I mean, how do you square your, your account of multipolarity with these recent events. Good. Take the general argument first. Right. Uh, uh, I think the basic argument we want to make is not that U.S. power and European might, as it were, such that it is, have simply ebbed away, but rather there's been a rebalancing of world power. For most of the modern period, I'm thinking really from the, the 17th century onwards, but for about 250 years or so, 250 years or more, the West has basically written the rules of the international order through empire, colonization, and basically through the control of territory. After the massive World War I and World War II, the undermining of these global empires, the weakening of colonization, it was possible for Western interests to still remain dominant through, as it were, the entrenchment of their interest in international institutions after the Second World War. You see that in the P5 membership. You see that in the way in which voting rights are skewed in the IMF and the World Bank. What we've had, essentially, since 1945 is a continuation, as it were, not of empire through control of territory, but, as it were, control through rules of the game, managing the rules of the game. And this is, if you like, is the club model of 
governance at the international level. The G1, as I call the United States, the G5, the G6, the G7, and so on, have by and large managed most of the complex institutions because they've had leverage on them, which, way out, uh, uh, which was way in excess of the leverage of other countries from different regions of the world. What has changed is that, particularly in the last 25 years, but increasingly with great acceleration, the world economy has been rebalanced. The U.S. contribution to global GDP has declined. The European contribution to global GDP has also declined, uh, with a huge rise in China's contribution to world GDP from about 4% to about 18%, rising rapidly to about 8%. They're all converging on about 18%. This is a truly significant change. Um, In the context of this change, I think... What has happened is not so much the U.S. and the, uh, of course, and, the UK, uh, and Europe do not have significant trumping power in certain sectors anymore, but rather they meet now the veto power, the capacities of emerging countries to say no. If this is the only deal on the table, we don't want it. This is what's happened in trade negotiations. Eight successful trade negotiations since 1945, then Doha, no. The Americans arrived with 500 trade delegates in, uh, uh, in Doha for the beginnings of the next round of trade negotiations. The European with similar numbers. Some African countries shared them, shared one. But the emerging countries could say, if this is the deal on the table, if this is your agenda, it's not going to work for us. For the first time, there was a sufficient economic clout behind that refusal to create a veto. Not necessarily an alternative democratic project, hegemonic project, but a veto. And that we now see in international negotiations after international negotiations. Again, uh, of course, at Copenhagen, when there was no agreement, and when the basic countries, the BRIC countries, the basic countries could say, again, we're not going to accept these uh, 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 negotiating positions. Um, I think the power shift as we refer to it, and I'll come on to it again in just a moment, is a sustained trend with far-reaching consequences. And these consequences are positive as well as negative. Let's just dwell, for example, on the positive, the colossal uh, reduction in the number of world poor, uh, the hundreds of millions of people lifted out of poverty in a way that is unprecedented in terms of speed and time. It's an absolutely extraordinary achievement. We've never seen anything like it. And of course, China is an obvious example, but not the only one. The transformations in China are extraordinary, but so too are they in other countries, parts of India, not all of India, but parts of India, South Korea, Vietnam. I can remember going to China for the first time some 25 years or so and arriving in uh, Beijing and wanted to do some shopping. There was one retail store in Beijing, and to get to the luxury goods sections of the fourth and fifth floor, such that they were, you had to be a member of the Communist Party or show your foreign passport. I was there just recently, 18 months ago, on a Friday night at about 6 o'clock, and you couldn't cross the roads for Mercedes, BMWs, and other luxury cars. You could go into shopping mall after shopping mall. I watched a gog as young Chinese were in the luxury shopping malls buying Prada handbags, and so on and so forth. This is a transformation of extraordinary kind with profound implications for the life chances of hundreds of millions of people. The post-war rivalry between the great powers, to the extent that it was kept in check, I think incentivized this economic development and it allowed new entrants into the world economy. And boy, did they pour in. Few liberal economists, I think, would have predicted this this extraordinary increase in entrance into the world economy 
and many of them in their economic policies departing from the standard liberal model or the so-called Washington Consensus model. Few would have predicted 25 years ago that these countries would have accelerated their economic development to the extent that they have. And, of course, LSE's Danny Kwan, who I believe is speaking at this very time, is probably talking about this again, and he plots in a very subtle way what he calls the shifting center of economic gravity in the world in the 19th century mid-Atlantic, slowly now moving eastwards, somewhere now, I think, in uh, South Turkey, northern Northern Turkey, but if trends continue between India and China within 30 years. This is an extraordinary set of changes. The emerging economic powers, I think, have, of course, at the same time, have developed their own agendas, and it's hardly surprising. They have voice, they have interest, they're not always those as we see in the international negotiations over finance and climate, they aren't necessarily the same as those in the West. And that difference of voice and interest is expressed in fora after fora. And the consequences have been striking. Um, The power shifts bring huge benefits, as I said, but they also bring new challenges. And the question is, how are the new voices and interests of the emerging countries going to be represented in international and transnational governance institutions in order to both enhance their representativeness and effectiveness? I think the old clubs of Western models, the Western models clubs of interest, they have lost their dominance. They've not lost all their authority or their influence, but certainly they can now be trumped or blocked. And this, I think, is a positive thing. This, we think, in gridlock, and we trace its implications, is a positive thing for the world overall and certainly for these countries. But the other side of it is that new levels of dissensus emerge, new levels of conflict over ends and objectives emerge, and this blocks agreement on crucial issues. They, inter- they, they interact with the other kind of uh, gridlock mechanisms. So, you know, we're, Can you give an example, like trade? So, so, okay, so, um, uh, you know, international trade negotiations, you know, in the early 90s when the, the Uruguay round of international trade negotiations was trying to come to a close, the EU and the U.S., let's, let's not forget the role of the EU here, yeah. um, uh, were, were very effective at um, extracting information from uh, developing countries with respect to what they wanted through existing international institutions at the gap at the time that they wanted and were able to uh, essentially uh, engage in a kind of power play where they got a lot of what they wanted, the West, uh, at least the, um, the uh, uh, Europe and um, uh, North America got a lot of what they wanted uh, through pushing other countries around at the time. And Doha has been completely different, right? Because uh, there, um, there's been... Um, uh, not only uh, different kinds of uh, international uh, institutions. So we have the WTO, which has different rules that we created in the past, um, uh, where, there ha- where the role of consensus is much more uh, important as it was in the past. And we have all kinds of coalitions emerging uh, within, uh, within the developing world and within uh, re-emergent powers, if I can call them that, that are uh, having kind of coalitional effects which, which block the U.S. and the EU getting exactly what it wants. And indeed, we see this in Doha, and we try to do- document this in the book a little bit, sort of uh, round after round, and it, it, little institutional innovation after innovation, we kept on seeing failure and failure and failure to come to uh, a collective agreement, to, to the extent that, you know, sometimes they were, they were coming up with all kinds of uh, 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 creative ways of trying to forge agreement between small numbers of parties, et cetera, and nothing seemed to really do the trick. And so a, a lot of that is this, is this multipolarity story. It doesn't mean the U.S. doesn't get a lot of what it, what it, what it wants, yeah. 
um, uh, but it certainly constrains a very different picture than it was um, in the past. But the, 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 it's interesting, this language of veto and blockage kind of reminds me of Gramsci in the 1920s when he was talking of the old order has decayed but the new order has not yet been born. That was going to be the title <laughs> of the book. But, uh, uh, it's not quite as The Neo-Gramscians are sort of... I didn't know that. Uh, I mean, is that the gist of the story then that you're waiting for a new hegemon mm. to come on the, on the scene? And if so, what's it going to be? Mm. China? Well, I think that our argument is that the new order not just hasn't arrived yet, but might not arrive, in fact, and that we might have to, the challenge we face is indeed to live in an era where order is harder to create. Um, you know, we could look for leadership in lots of places. Maybe it's China. Um, I'm quite doubtful. China, um, people, China is often called upon uh, by Western people or people in Japan to uh, be a more responsible stakeholder in the global system, and they see this shift of power um, as necessitating a sh- uh, commensurate rise in China's investment in global public goods and other um, pro-social behavior in, in the international system. Um, I think the more interesting story is how phenomenally drastic China's embrace of the global order has been in the um, very short time uh, since um, the end of the Mao period. You know, China's economic reform has... Uh, not follow the neoliberal prescription necessarily, but it's certainly taken place and benefited enormously from the uh, open trading system and the open system of uh, the financial integration that the world enjoys. It's hard to see how this export, that model of development would succeed without that kind of uh, global order. And so China is one of the biggest beneficiaries of the, of the post-war order, and it knows it. And that's why we see, you know, I would argue that China ha- is, China's embrace of the global system has been extraordinary. However, that doesn't mean that China is able or willing to pay the additional cost needed to move us beyond gridlock. Um, China's uh, chief difficulty over the next uh, few decades is to reorient its economy from this one of uh, export-led and investment-led uh, growth to a more domestic consumption-led uh, economy. Um, that's a hum- humongous challenge that's going to occupy the Chinese leadership for uh, the foreseeable future. There's not much space there to care also about uh, global public goods. Well, let's, let's take the EU then as an alternative candidate for potential uh, uh, leadership, as it were, to break the pathways to gridlock. And there, of course, the situation is uh, worse. We can think of at least two EUs. There's the EU of the uh, 1990s, If you look at the Eurobarometer polls in the mid-1990s, Europe is riding high with its population. Europe, EU, is enjoying widespread legitimacy. The model of of European soft governance, the pooling of sovereignty to deal with critical issues, is widely admired around the world. Famous American commentator compares and contrasts European Kant with America's Hobbes. And increasing numbers of people look to Europe for a new model of governance, a new strengthened form of internationalism uh, towards the end of the 20th century. Not anymore. Uh, The global financial crisis, which is really the coming together of gridlock in the global scene with the gridlock in the European one, has stymied Europe, as you all know, fundamentally. The increasing, uh, not, not surprising, obsession is the managing the European economy, uh, trying to preserve uh, the euro. So the EU is now, EU leadership now is essentially focused on Europe, looks internally, and actually is no longer often a vital player at international negotiations as it once was um, 10 years ago. You had a good example of that, Tom, mm. didn't you? The, 
The, the inter- recent international climate negotiations or one yeah. of them? So at the last, in last summer, around this time, uh, was a very important environmental meeting called the Rio Plus 20 conference where um, you know, there are great ambitions about how to reconstitute global environmental governance. Europe has, of course, been the historical leader of these efforts, um, but it happened to coincide with a pretty tight moment in the Euro crisis. And lots of European leaders didn't show up. Only a few uh, heads of state from Europe actually came, whereas the previous meeting in Johannesburg, almost all of the European heads of state were there. Um, And that leadership, that lack of leadership, uh, that internal distraction, um, put Europe in a very... Uh, made it rather impossible to achieve global cooperation without the strongest advocate of such cooperation being even at the table. I would just add that even between the United States and the EU in, in recent months on a range of different economic issues, <laughs> sorry, there's all of you out there, um, even across a range of different economic issues over the last few months, even the U.S. and the EU have proven often unable to cooperate on issues that one would think in the past um, uh, they would be able to, to cooperate on. In fact, in, in financial governance now, there's a real worry about financial protectionism, right? So this is like the most globalized sector of the economy. Every time you open up a book about uh, uh, globalization, you know, financial flows move all around the world with incredible speed, and they're buttressed through all these international institutions. Now, even between the U.S. and the EU, there's all kinds of concerns uh, and all kinds of volleys between the European Commission uh, and the Federal Reserve, where they can't agree on a number of critical issues, and there's concern about interbank lending within within this zone uh, declining and, and, and continuing the uh, global slump that we've been in for, for some time. So even within the core, this this kind of breakdown arguably uh, uh, is, is is happening. So not 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 that much uh, 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 sort of room for hopeful leadership there. If, if the problems are Let, that let's, nature, let's take that up as the last question from from me then and then bring in the audience. Uh, the, the, the last part of the book, the last chapter is called Beyond Gridlock. Um, how, how do you think we are going to get beyond gridlock and how do you deal with the, what seems to be almost like an observable fact that very often it's war that precipitates a real change in the distribution of power and the rebuilding of institutions. War is both destructive and productive. I mean, is, is, is that what you foresee or are you thinking of different ways out of this? Well, can I, can, I, can I just start on that? I mean, it is the case that um, in the you know, catastrophic wars of the first half of the 20th century, I always remind my students it wasn't Islam or China that brought the world to the edge of the abyss in the 20th century. It was, in a sense, Europe, not just once, but twice. And after each of these great wars, of course, there were huge efforts at international reorganization and an attempt to avert war again. The, after the First World War, of course, the foundation of the League of Nations, which proved very short-lived. But after the Second World War, of course, the UN system, which we argue has been hugely successful. The UN system is, of course, often knocked and criticized, but we argue that that institutional cluster, as we've been arguing all along, was sufficiently successful in order to prevent a Third World War, or help to prevent a Third World War. There are other factors as well, of course, which allowed this long, sustained, remarkable period of global economic development and growth, which brings us to where we are, as it were. Um, We are faced now with a set of global challenges, climate being, of course, the most obvious one, where we have a good idea what's going to happen if we do nothing. Climate change has a capacity to uproot human activities as we know it, human association as we know it, and to change fundamentally many of the parameters of human life. We know all this. 
Yet, do we have the wisdom now to be able to act decisively around these issues without, as it were, calamity? We have a unique moment, as it were, to galvanize our energies, to break gridlock in one area or another, and to learn from that process. But the challenge now is to do it, as it were, anticipating calamity rather than actually being in a calamitous circumstance as we have been in the first half of the 20th century. And the evidence at this moment is not good that we will be able to break out of gridlock through the coming together of great leadership and social movements of one kind or another. Let's look at social movements as a source. Well, we've already discussed the national leaderships, as it were, or the leadership of the great blocs. China focused on its own internal legitimacy through economic growth. Europe dogged by the crisis of the euro and seeking stabilization of the economic situation in Europe. The U.S., of course, often gridlocked in Congress, and no matter what Obama says about his climate program, getting a lot of that through Congress will be extremely difficult. So what are the alternative social movements? Social movements have a fantastic capacity to put issues on the agenda, but unless they connect to institutional politics, they often disappear. Remember Occupy. Um, Occupy two years ago was formidably successful in raising... Uh, fundamental questions about the nature of global finance, about the restructuring necessity to restructure global financial institutions, to bring markets, financial markets, to heal in many important respects. This agenda is not unimportant. But two years later, Occupy is hard to hear. That, it seems to me, is the fate of certain kinds of social movements unless they can articulate their projects in institutional politics, unless there's a coalition between movement and leaderships within institutions. When that happens, change occurs. For instance, you think of the extraordinary impact to me, and I think it's one of the most extraordinary changes in the contemporary period, not at the global level, however, but it's a great example of how, as it were, the 60s and the, uh, uh, and the wave of, that particular wave of feminists in the 60s and 70s led to the raising of girls' expectations over their futures and their schooling, led to changes in educational policy that integrated young girls into schools more and so on. 25 years ago, the problem was the dominance of boys at every level of education. Today, it's almost reversed in just 25 years. Girls outperforming boys at high school in almost every category of subject and now at universities uh, too. Social movements, when they interlock with institutions at the global level, can produce similar significant results. Think of the Landmine Treaty, think of the foundation of the ICC, which was driven partly by social protest and civil society movements. However, unless that bridge is made, the institutional solutions will always be partial. And where we sit today, it is very hard indeed to see how social movements without reconnecting to institutions will resolve gridlock. Do you want to add to this, guys? Yeah, I think um, one of the beacons of hope that I see in my work on climate change um, comes not from the gridlocked multilateral negotiations, but from the actions that other kinds of actors are taking on climate change. And I mean, don't mean nation states, but I mean parts of nation states, like cities or regions or, or provinces or states, or non-state actors like corporations or non-governmental organizations um, who are taking the gridlock in the global setting as an opportunity to make their own kind of progress on these issues. And we see a really vast range of action here, be it uh, the state of California introducing its own regulations um, or uh, uh, individual corporations signing up to disclose their carbon footprints, um, individuals taking action. 
this is really exciting stuff, and it kind of bellies the traditional pessimism that we have that a collective action requires a collective solution. A collective action problem requires a collective solution. People actually are willing to, to take, be the first mover, to go ahead and try to make progress, even if they don't, can't be sure that other people are going to join them. Um, the problem, though, is that these things haven't reached yet a level of scale and a level of ambition to actually solve the problem. So there's some seeds of hope, but the, the key task before us is really to think about how to uh, make this proliferation of bottom-up stuff enough of a substitute or, or catalyst for the, the top-down uh, institutionalized reforms that are actually going to bring us the rest of the way there that uh, David mentioned. Kevin, do you want to last one? Well, I, would, um, I, would, I would only add very briefly um, that uh, a lot of scholars of international relations and global, uh, global economic governance generally are uh, increasingly sort of satisfied with the notion that maybe we don't need a global uh, agreement on every single issue um, that, has, uh, that has been raised. And so there's this, there's this rise of the term um, cooperative decentralization. You know, it's okay if we, if we don't have global agreement on, 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 on trade and financial rules, if we don't have an international standard informing all of public policy, et cetera. And uh, I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the dangers with that is that um, uh, uh, publics may become a little bit uh, uh, complacent and the kind of institutional capacity we've been creating um, for, for many years since, uh, since World War II uh, ended will, will simply cease and that capacity will, uh, will end. But I'm actually more interested in hearing what uh, all these people have well, to well, say. Yeah, now is the time. Um, I'd, I'd like to thank uh, Tom, Kevin and Debbie. I think they've given a very good account of the book as a whole. So. That will allow people to engage with it. I'm going to come and stand over here so that I can see people on that side. I will call you first, sir. Um, could you please sort of try and keep your questions fairly short and just say who you are when, when I call you? I'll start with that gentleman. Schlacke from uh, Occupy. Uh, I am part of the Economic Working Group. Um, gridlocks, of course, are also in not just the international uh, realms, but if you look at uh, the various health systems in all kinds of uh, territories, nations, in especially the educational uh, uh, complex, also in the academic complex, uh, you know, just look at uh, British academia, uh, economics departments, or now, we feel that the identification of problems, that is in the old club tradition, whilst the definition work, which includes uh, quite intensely semiological and anthropological and uh, um, uh, other aspects, um, uh, technological aspects, uh, is very often not considered sufficiently. However, for instance, when it comes to Wall Street Occupy, they do fantastic definitions in the moment. They have offered a card index of, uh, of explanations. I mean, the, the British uh, Occupy, we have offered, with the help of LSE people, um, uh, a little learning booklet um, um, uh, about uh, key issues, but the American Wall Street Occupy is fantastic, and they are connecting with uh, global philosophers much better than anybody else, I think, even with the gridlock research now. 
Could, they you, include the semiological sorry, could aspects. You, could you now phrase a question? A question, okay. So, uh, how do you relate to the um, uh, micro level of uh, economics and finance? Thank you. Do you want to take them one at a time? or We'll take three. Uh, lady in the front row, and then young man behind. Um, uh, the name is Jesse Harrington. Um, you looked at the institutional side and governance levels. I would like to ask you a question from the point of view of the public, as a member of the public, to create a secure, equ equitable world with sustainable growth, at what level should we be living? That is, do you have any figures for that? Um, and do we have the technology for that? Or do we need more technological revolutions and evolutions um, to be able to get the growth bigger? Um, and um, so, and uh, to, you said also we're lacking governance, so to be able to create the governance, what should we be doing? Yeah, young man there. Uh, Eric from Eckerd College in the United States. Uh, you referenced earlier on climate change uh, about the countries well, that, that were at a tipping point and that the countries that are going to push us over the tipping point has finally gotten to that kind of area where they can enjoy... Uh, the benefits, with, um, with them now having a seat at the table where they can say no, how are you going to convince those countries to kind of cut back and to not enjoy the benefits that they've now finally reached? We'll take these questions, but before I do, since some of you are leaving now, just to say... Um, uh, Apart from the fact that the book's outside for sale, we're, and secondly, we're very happy to sign it, and that's free. But more importantly, we have drinks for some of you who would like to attend in the old building, uh, in the atrium of the old building, immediately afterwards. And you're all very welcome to join us for a drink. And I wanted to say that before you all start drifting out and before we start answering questions. And uh, I hope to see some of you there. So, who's going to handle what? Um, Let's go down the line. So um, there are a few questions about uh, sustainability and how we can ensure a sustainable future in a world where people also get the lifestyle that they want um, or that they are arguably entitled to. So I think it's, you know, that's, the, <laughs> that's the big question we face. Um, certainly the project will not succeed if it means that uh, it involves denying people the opportunity to have access to, elect to electricity, to a basic standard of living that most of the people in this room who have enjoyed those standards of living um, would consider a sort of a bare human, a bare necessity for human dignity. Um, billions of people in the world don't enjoy that standard yet. There'll be billions more people in the world in the next few decades who will need to be brought into that standard of living. So it's not just a question of limiting. Uh, if it's if it's phrased as a problem of limiting. Um, the ability of people to enjoy a dignified life, then it won't succeed. So we need to have this, this uh, magical f uh, conflation of sustainability and development, the, the old formulation. Um, what can governance institutions do to help us get there? I think that the 
we shouldn't think about it as uh, we in the West telling the emerging powers how they should behave. That's not going to work, as we've outlined. Um, what will work is trying to tackle us as a common problem. So you've maybe read about recently an agreement uh, just yesterday and today but, uh, between the United States and China to try to tackle some climate change issues. And these are very small measures to uh, change the way heavy trucks operate, to cooperate on something called hydrofluorocarbons, which are potent greenhouse gas, other kinds of incremental steps. But the great thing about this is that it helps the pro-climate actors in both countries make progress in the domestic debates. The key problem for both the, for the G2 is not um, the international level, really, but getting around the blockages they find in, in Congress in the United States or in state-owned enterprises and uh, parts of the Chinese bureaucracy. So these uh, nice kinds of cooperative measures are able to reinforce the leverage that those pro-climate actors have domestically against the, their opponents domestically. Um, and that's how international cooperation, I think, can help to inch forward toward progress. So I, I'm happy to. to Kevin to, has to an take answer. That up as well <laughs> and add to that. So we don't. Um, to give you a very direct answer, in the book we don't really have um, much direct to say about the appropriate scale at which economic activity should take place in order to facilitate some sort of sustainability goal. All I would add um, uh, to that uh, uh, short and pithy answer to your question is that arguably many would agree. Um, that uh, some modicum of global cooperation on a range of different pressing issues is important whether, whether or not we are uh, localists um, at, at heart and whether or not we uh, approve of, of a kind of robust sustainability uh, agenda um, uh, or not. I think one of, the, one of the problems conceptually, and this is really what we're trying to um, um, uh, sort of bring out in the book, um, is, well, it's difficult to conceive of even, even many local problems that are emergent in many different localities as fundamentally uh, non-global, in the sense that there's often an, an underlying sort of international dynamic uh, behind many, uh, many local problems, and arguably uh, we need uh, global solutions to those problems. I would, I would only add to that that um, there's, there's, I think, a tendency within many communities um, uh, that want more sustainable economic development and that kind of thing to think about the international system uh, in terms of international institutions um, uh, existing to, uh, to buttress a kind of neoliberal project exclusively. And I think that's sort of, that's arguably a misunderstanding that has, has pervaded and prevented a lot more uh, global cooperation and, and prevented a kind of progressive economic uh, project that maybe more people would actually, um, uh, ac actually support. But that's the only uh, as direct an answer I can, I can give to you as as I can, I can possibly. We have questions. Did you want to? So, so there's micro, there's micro uh, uh, gridlock. What do we have to say about that? Well, obviously, the, the focus of the book is um, on, the, on the level. Right. Right. Well, I mean, ar arguably, um, there's, there are different forms of gridlock uh, within um, uh, uh, national scales, or even there's, there's a study here at the LSE um, uh, by uh, Simon Hickson's colleague on, on, on gridlock within the European Parliament, within European institutions. Indeed, uh, I believe there's whole books written about gridlock uh, in the U.S. Congress. And these are arguably different kind of dynamics uh, often. For example, in the United States, uh, there's, a, there's a famous argument that um, uh, party polarization intensifies as the level of inequality intensifies. And that's, that's 
simply a, a different kind of mechanism than the kind of mechanisms we're trying to uh, address and develop and, and explicate in the book, which exist at the level of the international system because of previous success in generating international cooperation. Can we let David... No, I'm not going to add anything. You're not going to add anything. So in that case, I'd like to go to some hands that I saw up before. Uh, yes, we'll take you first, then. and then gentlemen there. You and then next round. My name is Emily Henderson. I'm from College of Charleston in the U.S. Um, so you said that global organizations have not done enough for the increasing globalization and interconnectedness, such as like IMF, World Bank, those kind of things. Um, so are you suggesting a world government, or can I get your opinion on a world government, and do you see that in our future? Thank you. So, my name is David Wood from London Futurists. Uh, I wanted to ask of your awareness of the work by another Oxford professor, Ian Golding, who in this same room four months ago gave a talk which is pretty similar on divided nations and why world governance is failing but why we need it. And so as much as I remember, his argument was there's a lot of people who've been in institutions and they now retired from institutions and they really realize you know, they, they didn't have the time before to make the, the changes work. And he's trying to coordinate a whole bunch of them through the Oxford Martin School, ex-politicians, ex-institutional leaders. Do you have any hope that that could be part of the solution? Uh, thank you very much, everybody. My name's Peter Hanley. Um, I work in uh, the ports and logistics industry from the UK, so we have a global connection, uh, but I do do private research in systems. So this has been very interesting for me. So my question is, I think these are fantastic observations that you are working on, that you put in the book, but it's about going beyond gridlock. So my question is, what do we need to do using your diagram, Kevin, of your network? What do we need to do to the network? Okay. Copyright Howard Davies, but go ahead. Yeah. What do we need to do to the network or feed it uh, to help it stay in network mode more often than chaos mode? Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, I'll have a go at uh, some of these, and we'll, we'll offer slightly different responses to these three questions. Uh, let's take them in reverse order. Uh, in my, on my understanding, uh, first of all, beyond gridlock, we have another volume coming out called uh, Beyond Gridlock, but that's about two years' time down the road. Uh, secondly, because it does seem to us beholden to work out pathways out of gridlock, um, but the, I think the most important thing uh, to say about this book is the project was not to map that path, but by focusing on what's going on across a number of inter areas, concentrate minds on the problem. And if you can state the problem clearly as one of a kind of pervasive gridlock and concentrate minds of leaders on these issues, then there's a greater opportunity of moving outside it. But unless you define the problem first, you're hardly going to be able to meet that challenge. So this, the primary purpose of this book is explanatory analytical. On Ian Golden, of course, you know, there's, it, there's often very little new under the sun and uh, books come in waves of things. Um, Ian Golden's book overlaps with ours in some extent, but I think our explanatory framework is rather different to his. Uh, there are points of contact, there are points of, uh, of similarity, but overall our arguments about pathways to gridlock, I think, takes a relatively different, has a relatively emphasis to his. 
Are we suggesting a world government? I think no. To come back to my first response, I think we're suggesting a set of problems. Do I think world government is a solution? Well, I've written at great length about cosmopolitanism, as some of you might know, and cosmopolitan uh, democracy. Uh, but you have to distinguish different kinds of questions. I, as a political theorist, I write at three different levels. I write at books about where we might like to go, books about where we are, and books about how you might get from where we like to be to where we, from where we are to where we might like to be. And I have a lot to say about your question. <laughs> But that's not what this book is about, is what I'm trying to say. And we wouldn't agree on it, I have to say. Uh, but, I, 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 uh, but I think what we would agree on is, is this, is without greater coordination across many of these problem areas, without policymakers seeing the repeated circles of failure that occur across these areas, without picking out the pathways, the path dependencies that lead to fragmentation and so on, we're going to go round in a vicious circle. What was once a virtuous circle becomes a negative set of circles. And that you have to break. How you break it and on what particular agenda is another question. And certainly in my own work, I've been a passionate advocate of, of internationalism, of cosmopolitanism, and of building on the achievements of 20th century international law and institution building, which I call stepping stones to a cosmopolitan order. But that is, I have to suggest uh, and emphasize, not what this book tries to do. Mm. Do That's not quite an answer to the question, David. Do you believe in world government is the question. Um, Can I just come in on this point? Um, I'll come back to that. Fair enough. So I think, I mean, I'm less of a political theorist and more of a sort of what's what explains the world we see today and I think if we take that perspective world government is not really in the realm of likely outcomes and so we can pretty much um, leave it to the political theorists um, which is why we probably wouldn't agree on writing a book about it but um, I think uh, Ian's book does a great job of pointing out the need for global cooperation and the lack of it Um, what we try to do is to explain why we have a lack of it Ian makes a very I think morally strong call for more effective global governance Um, but our book shows that effective global governance is unlikely to emerge, not just because we don't have good ideas about how to do it, but because there's these deep-seated historical trends that are, in fact, the products of our previous success that make it hard to do politically. Um, I think the commission on the future, I think it's called the 21st Century Commission, uh, I'm not quite sure which is what the name he he has for it, Um, you know, they bring together the good and the great to think very hard about how we might make progress, and that's a worthwhile exercise, and I I wish, uh, you know, We'll look forward to seeing what good suggestions they come up with. There are other similar commissions that um, put their mind to this. But you know, I think the value of seeing gridlock as we describe it um, is to say this is a more than just about having smart institutional design. This is a long-term, historically contingent trend, and we're going to need to think about long-term, historically contingent trends as solutions. Um, so not to discredit it, not to uh, cast aspersion on that very worthwhile project, but I think we would be cautionary about expecting silver bullets to emerge anytime soon. I'll answer your question. Okay, you want to come in? No, no. I want so, to hear David answer I'll to your question as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the short answer would be no. I don't think uh, world government is either desirable or feasible. However, there are many intermediate steps which are both desirable and feasible. The post-war order created a set of institutional circumstances at the global level which have been hugely successful, as we've argued. Um, That's because global governance can work and can galvanize 
a rule system across the world, a shared rule system that allows the world economy and a range of other significant goods to develop. The problem is that the rule system that created that progressive growth trajectory and so on is no longer the rule system we would want if we were starting from scratch. Now we know, for example, what some of the colossal public goods crises are as a result of that system, sustainability, climate change, and a whole host of other things. We'd want the rules to not just be growth-oriented. We'd want the rules to be sustainability-oriented. We'd want the rules to embed the costs of environmental uh, uh, damage into the price of goods and services itself. And we'd want many other things as well. So we'd need, then, a different institutional design which embeds the modus operandi of companies, firms, civil society organizations, things in the set of shared but alternative reframing of rules. We can imagine that, but it's difficult to achieve. I don't think we start from nowhere. We start from a system of global governance at its best, which has huge credits. We start with the beginnings of a universal constitutional order that seeks to move down that road. The laws of war and human rights regime are two sides of a complementary structure which has sought to re-articulate sovereignty and embed it in a new system of rules which qualifies in fundamental ways. These stepping stones to what I call the universal constitutional order are hugely significant. They're things that the international order has got right, often as a result of catastrophes in the past. These are the stepping stones I think we build on. These are the stepping stones I defend in other of my books. These are the stepping stones we need to extend by enriching our governance institutions at the global level, but we're in a framework of rules that are not just market-driven, but are sustainable, uh, friendly to gender, diversity, and so on and so forth. In my other work, I try to fill that out at some length, but I won't go on now. Oh, that's a very interesting answer, David. I just want to make sure we're not missing... Yeah, well, there's a gentleman here. Uh, perhaps we should start with you, sir. Yeah. Um, is anybody... Yeah, at the back... Michael Gavrilovich, uh, my question is that a case of responsibility of all these bodies. Who are they responsible to? Ultimately, they have to be responsible to people, to ourselves. And my question, hence, is one on national versus international and sovereign versus international. It appears to me that uh, we've sort of uh, uh, lost orientation here. A very good example has been given, in fact, by by Professor Held, uh, telling us about the position of the EU. In the mid-90s, a relatively high rating, now a very low rating. The fact is that people, quite simply, do not identify with the European Parliament. They still want to identify with their own nation states. And I don't know how long we can ignore that. Uh, I have been for for a united Europe, if you like, so long as it was a national Europe. I support uh, UKIP, by the way, and I would support similar groups in Germany, France, and elsewhere, because that is what Europe is. What we now have is basically a kind of soup with no responsibility. And unless we know where the the buck ends, then it can be easily passed about, and then you get what you've got here, the gridlock. But you may want to comment on that. Do you want to ask a question, sir? Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yes, very interesting. Um, The crisis that we are going undergoing these days um, 
it has laid bare the uh, need for uh, more closer international cooperation. Um, can we use this, the crisis to enhance, to promote international cooperation? Thank you. Take the person right down in front and we'll take the tracer back for the next round. Hi. I'm, I'm Susan Wolfe. Um, and, and I know you've said that your book is not about solutions, but I can't help thinking about a, an America, a, a European tour guide I was speaking to a few years ago who said, who led groups of Midwestern Americans around Europe, and she said, Tell me, she said, how do you get someone? from the American Midwest to try a different kind of salad dressing. <laughs> and in a world where people don't want to try a different kind of salad dressing and things have changed so much, how do you get people locally to see the larger picture? Thank you. Okay, well, let me, there's uh, several questions about national identities and the conflict between local and particular identities and global challenges. And I think that's really at the heart of the issues we're talking about today. You know, we live, interdependence means that my ability to get what I want means that you have to do something for me. And your ability to get what you want means that I have to do something for you. And the globalization has made that condition prevalent across the entire world. No issue that uh, matters to people today on the headlines, be it economic management, environmental quality, basic security, can be solved really at a local level and, and exclusively, or very few problems are characterized by that. Things like the quality of your school, um, maybe, but um, you know, the issues we have are, are global in nature. And that has big implications for democracy, if you want. Um, democracies have developed as national institutions um, where we have some say in, in over governance. But if decisions are affecting us that are made in Beijing or in uh, other parts of the world, then no level of national democracy and no level of sovereign defense for our national democracy is going to be effective for solving that. Instead, it might be worthwhile for us to give up some of that autonomy we have from sovereignty in order to get cooperation from Beijing or other places um, because those are the decisions and the forces that are really affecting us. So um, this... Is this reality is when we face is at this juncture with our national identities and with our political identities, with our individual identities often. I don't think that's going to go away. I think that's going to remain a very prevalent uh, part of the world order. Um, but the, so that's you know, why we think gridlock is such a <laughs> difficult problem because we have this fundamental disconnect between uh, our institutions and identities and the problems we need to solve. Address the Europe question. So, so that's my take on Europe, is that uh, we will continue to see uh, national identities far into the future um, in Europe and elsewhere, um, but we need to have a way of, of managing those particular identities in an interdependent setting where you, you can't just go into your own cave and say, I'm the lord of my castle, no one can come through the moats, because we, don't, we live in a world that's fundamentally a world of, uh, uh, I don't know, it's a rabbit warren, it's not a castle, it's a, an interconnected world. So the, the question of the, the, the crisis, sorry, I didn't get your name. Um, so um, arguably the, the, the shock effect has started to, started to wear, up, wear, wear off uh, in, in many quarters. I mean, there were initiatives immediately after the crisis to revitalize the uh, um, international trade system through enhanced multilateral cooperation. 
that again uh, started to break down under some of the forces that we identified. Uh, even within the financial um, system, the slide we had up earlier, there was a recognition that, oh, look, wow, we have a tangled web here. It was referred to as a tangled web um, uh, at one point by Bhattacharya. And the, um, and the attempt to create an international tra uh, financial tax, transaction tax. There was initiatives like that that were more, uh, more uh, arguably robust and, and called for more global governance uh, at that level, but those within the G20 um, uh, failed as well. So I'm actually skeptical that we can utilize a lot of the sort of immediate post-crisis uh, social shock to, uh, to, to, move us, uh, to move us forward. That and the fact that a lot of the problems that we, we describe in the book that exist within the economic domain also exist within the security domain, which we, which we barely touched on here in a sense, um, and, and, and an environment. So there's, 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 common, uh, there's common sort of pathways across these areas. So our hope is that um, uh, by, by highlighting these, uh, we'll, we'll have some uh, uh, intellectual traction there. But I, I think the post-crisis uh, sort of shock effect has really started to, to, to wear off. The salad dressing question. I mean, of course, how do you get people to try different salad dressings? By tempting them to do so, by uh, uh, giving them the opportunity to do so, and by showing that the salad dressing they've always had is not the only salad dressing that they could possibly have in the future. That, I think, is the fundamental value of education, to take perspectives we all take for granted and to relativize them, to show that there are only one set of views among many others. And I think education, uh, publications, the media, social media, all create a, a, a public sphere in and through which it's possible, of course, to change the horizons of what it is that you have as a, as a salad dressing, as it were, to continue the metaphor. Of course, um, change, fundamental change, only comes really when you get sick of a certain salad dressing and you want to move on, to continue this metaphor. That is to say, when your interests begin to be affected fundamentally by the salad dressing, and you begin to say, actually, I actually can't go on like this. You know, it's going to make me sick if I have another salad dressing like this. I should stop this metaphor. When you begin to see your interests defined in a different way. So to leave this behind us a little bit now... I think change occurs when sufficient number of peoples and coalitions of groups, whether they're states and movements or collections of states and so on, come to a common view that their interests are being so damaged by a set of circumstances that they need to redefine those circumstances and create new rules. At the level of citizenship, at the level of citizenship, that moment comes when people experience you know, a, a, a growing awareness of a set of constellations of issues that begin to motivate them. And so you see that in teenage kids all the time, waking up to the fact that some fundamental things about the world are changing, and so on. So at different levels, you see people begin to engage with new issues and horizons begin to change. But at the level of states, corporations, and so on, at the end of the day, no matter what their horizons and awareness of a diversity of possible salad dressings, they will not act unless their interest is to so do. And at that level, I remain a materialist. Uh, I think we've got time for three very quick questions and three very quick answers. I'm going to have to disappoint a lot of people, including friends. Don't forget um, the books outside and don't forget the drinks. I was going to say that, David, at the end. <laughs> Twice you've already said that. I'm going right. to go... From that side, one person at the back and you at the front. So if we, if we could start with this 
If you can try and keep the question short and snappy. Sure, okay. Um, Hannah Percival, I actually work for the Department of uh, International Development here in the UK. Um, so my question is kind of about developing countries. Um, it's just basically, obviously you've talked about a kind of reform of world institutions, which is really interesting, and obviously the kind of link between the top-down and the kind of bottom-up movements, really. And I just kind of wondered, what kind of do you see in terms of the future, um, the kind of participatory framework for kind of developing countries in particular to get more involved in global institutions? Yeah, I'll try and keep it at that. Lovely. Um, I think you were first, sir, with a sort of a red shirt from here. Um, sorry to disappoint you, others. Uh, Tony Chambers, uh, We Care Foundation. Uh, I would like to suggest, if I may, that maybe it's a failing of the capitalist system that uh, maximises profit over kind of social impact. Thank you. And you can have the last question. You could come down to the very front, please, on the to my left. Chaps, three equally short answers. Yeah. I'm Elsina Jeffers, and I have my own foundation. Why don't we just launch it? You have over 200 people in the room here. Let's launch it here. The Queen asked the LSE a question. Let's answer it. The Queen asked the LSE a question. She did when she came here to open the new academic building, uh, yeah. which was, why didn't, why didn't anybody tell us about the financial crisis? <laughs> Like she had Kevin. in mind our economists. I'll let Kevin answer that one. Uh, I'd like to take the one about, to, to begin with, about, if I may, about participation and the incentivization of participation. What you tend to find is that the higher up the social hierarchy people have as a background, um, uh, as it were, the higher their social standing and status, the more incentivized they are to participate. In other words, if people believe they're rewards to participation, they tend to participate. And if they believe they're not rewards to participation, they tend to participate less. I, I fundamentally believe that, you know, uh, certainly there's a whole civil society structure and social movement structure in which participation is of great significance. But in order to articulate that participation with institutions, you need avenues to do that. You need to build public avenues of, that incentivize that participation. We don't have those within the institutions themselves. Whilst it is the case that there has been a considerable improvement in many of the international governmental organizations, openness, publicity, transparency, they use the web much more than they use web, so they publish the uh, minutes of key meetings you know, much more than they did in the past. This doesn't amount to great participatory channels. So how do you do that? That gets back to the question you asked earlier. I think you can only really do that at the global level by creating much more deliberative connections between peoples and uh, institutions by creating deliberative chambers which make it possible for people to articulate their views on a more sustained basis. Ultimately, of course, there are schemes, many schemes about that would seek to complement a, a parliament of states at the global level, which is the current General Assembly with a parliament of peoples more directly elected, such as perhaps in the European model. But whilst we're not going to get anything like that in the short term, I think it is possible to conceive of ways of reforming international institutions that creates much more access for social movements and social agents. And actually, some, some already do that. One of the results of the great pressures of social movements and civil society movements in the 1990s was precisely to open up many of these international government institutions. You remember the crisis of the WTO in Seattle, where this huge pressure of social movements in Seattle nearly brought the WTO to a stop. Uh, since then, some of these organizations, as I say, have become more transparent, more open, and they do have 
participatory fora for social groups and social movements. Uh, these are significant but not sufficient. Elsewhere, I've tried to write about this in a number of different ways, but that would take us beyond this evening. Let me speak very quickly to the question about uh, building social and environmental values into business models and to try to integrate these in a more uh, comprehensive way. And we've seen huge progress in this in the last few decades. Uh, company, the idea of corporate respons- social responsibility has gone from a kind of fringe notion practiced by Ben and Jerry's to a kind of mainstream thing that every major corporation in the world thinks it has to do. Um, We've also seen models of, of social enterprises, businesses that have as one of their goals, not just profits, but of uh, creating social and environmental goods. These are fantastic shifts. They don't amount yet to a redefinition of capitalism, and I'd suggest that they're, uh, they're likely to remain partial solutions without more effective state regulation. State regulation um, was the traditional way we, we internalize externalities, to put it in economist speak. Um, and I, I just think that ultimately the solution is going to have to involve some mix of shifts from within the way that businesses conduct themselves and external pressure applied by publics via states and through regulation. Let me try to answer the Queen's question uh, really briefly, maybe yes. hit off the, the one that was back there. So there's many different explanations of, of the crisis and why it wasn't uh, um, uh, spotted. It's, it's obviously not our, our, our direct target in this, in this book, but I, I will tell you some thoughts that we do deal with in the uh, in the book, uh, of course, there, there's, a, there's a short-sightedness and a narrowness of the economics profession, which has been well uh, well documented uh, elsewhere. We didn't feel the need to go into too much here. Um, uh, of course, there's um, uh, before the crisis, there was obviously a lot of entrenched interests, not just within the financial sector, but, but within the wider uh, financialization of, of, of modern societies that played a role in, in making that economics profession rather complicit. The story that we do tell um, at, at, um, is, is very much at the international level in the, in the book, and we claim that on the one hand, uh, existing institutions entrenched and reinforced the biases of the Anglo-American um, uh, system that arguably uh, had the greatest interest in the, in the existing order uh, continuing and not spotting these problems on the one hand. And on the other hand, many um, uh, international institutions within that highly fragmented network that we had up there a moment ago uh, did identify particular uh, systemic problems, but couldn't do much about it. Often, uh, you know, they, make, they would make a call, they would write a policy paper, etc. But in a highly fragmented system with very little centralized coordination or authority uh, at the legal level or otherwise, very little could be, uh, could, could be done, and they became voices in the, in the wilderness. So we would not, uh, by any means, neglect the, the importance of national level or even civilizational or historical reasons for the crisis. Um, we try to identify some contributing factors that existed at the level of the international system that we tell in the book that are related to this general gridlock dynamic story we're trying to tell. A tiny little final note. If you want to uh, uh, have a tiny bit of homework, read the G8 communique after their last meeting. If you want to really know what gridlock means, read it carefully. For example, with respect to Syria, it calls for the urgency of finding a political solution. That's very, very precise. But it reaches its reductio ad absurdum, and I want to read you this, when it calls on, quote, the Syri- this is the G8 communication. It calls on the Syrian authorities to commit to destroying and expelling from Syria all organizations and individuals affiliated to al-Qaeda and any other non-state actors linked to terrorism. Assad would have been delighted. That is, as it were, the brutal banality of a gridlock politics 
that doesn't know how to move on. Thank you very much. Just before you go, let me just add a couple of points. David's twice done my job for me. They will now, the authors, be signing copies of the books outside, and you are all very welcome to go to Houghton Street, the main entrance of LSE. Go into Old Building if you want to join the authors later for a drink. It only remains for me to say thank you all for coming out tonight. We're especially pleased if we've got students here from the LSE summer schools, as I hope we have. Um, very grateful to LSE events. I think we have the best public events programme by far in the world, never mind in the UK or Europe. But most of all, very grateful to have our three authors with us and three uh, strong alumni of the LSE back at the school. Thank you Thank very you. much indeed.